You are listening to the Time Traveler's Almanac, a podcast from the History Department at Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Hello and welcome to our show. My name is Natalia da Silva Perez. And my name is Isabella Restrepo. Today, we have the pleasure to talk with our guest, Dr. Maria Avramidou, about migrants and the discourse around them. Maria Avramidou, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation and for paying attention to my work. <laughs> All right, let's start a little bit with um, information about you. You are a specialist on the reception and representation of migrants and refugees. Would you tell us a little bit how you came to be interested in this topic? So basically, this would be the story of my life. I started having an interest on migrant people while I was a student in uh, Greece, when I got involved in more, let's say, activist work about the support of migrant people and I was lucky because there were initiatives that they were more grassroots let's say so we were working alongside migrant people and it was actually the first time that I started thinking of migrant people and also what connects them with more local people so that's how it all started initially I studied law and one of the first things I started doing was working then as a supporter a legal advisor but I have a degree also in journalism so I moved more into journalism where I was very much interested on how journalists as professionals we represent migrant people, asylum seekers and refugees in particular. One thing led to another and I ended up uh, doing a PhD which was more on nationalism and how they relate to media and representations. After my PhD, it was time that I would kind of bring in, let's say, different experiences, professional and non-professional that I had. I applied for a postdoctoral grant to study social media and traditional media representations and reception in relation to migrant people. The proposal was successful and I ended up working for three years on this topic, which was during COVID as well. So a lot of work was, you know, desk research, but I made sure that I would also talk to individuals as well, like journalists working on migration. We also conducted focus groups with people with a migratory background in Cyprus. I'm originally from Cyprus. So it was really three years working on a topic that I really felt passionate about it, but also that it had and it has a huge societal, let's say, significance. So that was a great motivation to keep on working around it, although sometimes it did feel a bit challenging because we all know the circumstances that they surround migration in Europe and beyond. So that's how it all kind of started and that's where I am now. Maria, in your article, Migrants as Pawns, you talk about the 2020 Greek-Turkish border issue. In the article, you mentioned, for example, the effects of the 2015 migration crisis, the deal between Turkey and the European Union, and also the recent border dispute between Poland and Belarus. Could you paint a general picture of the environment around Europe at the time of the 2020 Greek-Turkish border conflict? So when I initially applied for the grant, I couldn't anticipate that we would have a new, let's say, a fresh border crisis in 2020. So what had happened? About the end of February 2020, it was announced that Turkey was about to freeze a deal that it had broken with the EU back in 2016 regarding the reception of migrant people. Well, the deal is very controversial and we see it as part of Europe's broader management of migration, which is about mostly keeping these particular migrants outside. So when there was this kind of announcement by Turkey, 
There was this idea in the international media that Turkey was facilitating migrant people to move towards its borders with uh, Greece and that it would facilitate them to cross towards Greece. So what I was witnessing in uh, social media and in traditional media was images of people moving towards an area that we call Evros because there is a river there that kind of naturally divides the Greek, Turkey and Bulgarian border. So at that time when the events started taking place, we started collecting data on Twitter in particular while simultaneously studying what the international media were telling us about the events. What we were witnessing was heavy images of people going to the border and what they found there was the Greek police. But what I think is interesting to know about the context is that Ursula von der Leyen, the, um, let's say the EU president, visited the area and she made some statement about Greece holding the line, a very militarized discourse. But another uh, piece of the puzzle is that by the beginning of March, we were also entering the COVID era. This meant Greece shut down its borders, like many other European uh, countries did, with the excuse, let's say, or the justification of COVID. So they wouldn't accept asylum applications. The international protection system was really frozen. This was the context when actually collecting the data. But when interpreting the data, we had the... Uh, Lukashenko's regime role into migration and migratory movements from Afghanistan mostly because the events in Afghanistan in 2020 and the change of regime. And what we found interesting was that there was some affinity between some discourses that we were studying for the Everest border and some with the discourses that we were listening to during the more recent migratory, let's say, events and border crisis. More or less that it's the context of the study. Maria, you just mentioned that Evros as a river kind of borders Bulgaria, Greece and Turkey. That just had me wondering, it seems that Evros holds a rather big significance, at least on the 2020 Turkish-Greek conflict. Why is that exactly? Does it also have maybe a historical religious significance in the conflict? Very good question. So Greece and Turkey, they have a, let's say, a turbulent history of competitions and of antagonism. So its border areas is also having this symbolic significance. And especially, I would say, for Greek nationalists, it does represent something beyond just a border with any other country. But there is also a community of Greeks in the area who are Turkish speakers. So there are also more complications and implications. Of course, there is a beauty of diversity, but on the other hand, there is uh, the horrific face of suppression and oppression by both sides, I would say, historically. It's the border with the historical enemy. And I come from Cyprus, so I could interpret the events also from my positionality coming from a country that also identifies Turkey as one of its historical enemies. So given this context, Text that you just gave us of the conflict between Turkey and Greece, it, you decided to study this uh, focusing on social media, right? So can you tell us a little bit about the hashtag that you focused on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when we started collecting our data, we could tell already from our not empirical uh, observations that a specific hashtag, I stand with Greece, was kind of becoming a trend. Yes, it was going a bit viral. It was the most used hashtag we found in our data. And this hashtag, to be honest, was a bit ambiguous, let's say. 
I could tell already that uh, probably it was used to target people on the move, but it wasn't, uh, you know, openly anti-migrant like, for example, refugees not welcome or migrants out of Europe. It was I stand with Greece. This ambiguity made it very interesting for uh, an academic relevance. And that's when we started being interested on who was using this hashtag, having the idea that if we would be able to identify who was using it, it would tell us something about what meanings were circulating about this hashtag. So one of the arguments in another study, not the one we're tracking now, is making the argument that it was very strategically chosen. So around it, we speculated that it would aim to bond people beyond, let's say, the usual suspects of anti-migrant discourses. But what we also kind of established is that it was used by the far right mainly, yes. So the top influencers, as we call them, that they were bonding around the hashtag and then disseminating ideas around it, were like Hopkins, which is um, a UK social media persona that was banned later on by Twitter, the identitarian movement of France and of Austria and Germany. So that's why we conceptualized the, the people who were using it as a network of intolerance. And uh, later on, with uh, the study we are discussing now, we went deeper, let's say, into the meanings that were uh, diffused by this network of intolerance around the hashtag, I stand with Chris. As you just mentioned, the hashtag showcased, let's just put it like this, some radical ideas. Some of the tweets, for example, described the president of Turkey as Hitler, where they mentioned all migrants and refugees as being Turkey's puppets. That just makes us kind of want to ask, what were the primary discourses you saw in the hashtag? The hashtag as such, we kind of do a linguistic analysis. Yes, it doesn't tell us that this is an anti-migratory discourse. Right, is I stand with Greece. However, the qualitative analysis showed that the discourse around it was explicitly, not only implicitly, anti-migrant. In the sense that this network of intolerance, they were even asking governments like Greece or the EU as a supranational organization to even shoot in cold blood migrant people trying to cross the border. In terms of representations, the main representation of these migrants, and that's from where we got the inspiration for the title, was mostly that of migrants as pawns. They were still invaders, but this network of intolerance was promoting was the idea that they wouldn't have been so dangerous had it not been for Turkish Erdogan. So we have a combination there of the representation of threat that evolves around Turkey and Erdogan in particular and migrant people. Now, why is that important? In light of uh, Lukashenko, who is under the influence of Russia, we're pushing this idea of kind of weaponized Europe's others against Europe. Now, it matters because we have seen how the debate and the discourse around refugees changed in view of the Russian invasion to Ukraine, where Ukraine is now invaded by Europe's and the West's, by extension, I would say, refined enemy. And Ukrainian people, and rightly so, are considered deserving of our protection 
Yes. But we see how the geopolitics matter in promoting ideas around who is a refugee, who is not, who is a deserving migrant and who is not. Because migrant people were considered undeserving because they were pushed towards Europe by Europe's, let's say, enemies. So that's why in this uh, study we focused on actors and their representations during the events. It seems that you're suggesting that migration crises are a recurring theme in European Union border politics. Like, for example, Italy's Lampedusa or Francis Calais. What exactly made this particular hashtag relevant for you? Yes. Well, first of all, it did help to foreground the argument of what you just mentioned. Are these indeed crises? I mean, the media are kind of full of stories every day of people dying in the Mediterranean Sea, at Calais, whatever. I mean, the European border is going through and we want to maintain this term of daily crisis. But is this a crisis if it's daily and if it's a routine? So the particular importance of I stand with Greece started with this idea that are we moving towards more ambiguous techniques and strategies to argue about keeping people out? So from Refugees not welcome, moving towards, I stand with Greece. So you see that the crises are constant, the discourses change, they are shaped and reshaped, but there is always, let's say, an effort to bring them to the surface as something that needs to be controlled. Sometimes with very explicit hashtags or ideas and sometimes with more ambiguous strategies. So this combination of the hashtag itself and the events kind of made the whole thing deserving of more academic, let's say, or empirical attention. But it does feel like we are um, kind of uh, dealing with the same and same discourses. And the question of why does our work matters becomes really a challenging one to address if, you know, we keep on saying things and providing evidence about what is happening, about the discourses that maintain this very racialized, very securitized uh, European border, but uh, it's so difficult to see change does make it a bit uh, tricky, let's uh, say. Actually, one of the most interesting metaphors that I saw in your paper was that they're described as this Trojan horse of Turkey. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about that? Yes, and I think that in that regard, the Trojan horse analogy relates to the fact that this was taking place in Greece. And Trojan horse, something that relates with Greek antiquity. And it was not the only analogy that was used that related to Greece past and uh, Greek antiquity and through this kind of historic but a bit of historical also analogies, which bring us to how anti-migrant discourses interwine so naturally, yes, and in a, such a strategic way with specific forms of uh, nationalism. In this regard, Greek ethno-nationalism, how nation of Greece is uh, understood as what it means to be a Westerner or what it means to be a European. So that's what pushes a bit towards um, developing the argument that Greece kind of personified the West because of its glorious past, how it was able in the past to keep uh, Europe's enemies, Persians, for example, or Turks, out, and how that resonated with its current, its modern role to hold the line, as von der Leyen said. So once more, Greece was protecting Europe from its 
its oriental uh, enemies. And that's kind of how we have used the evidence that you just mentioned, the Trojan horse or the Thermobilia Batsol analogy to make these arguments as well. Actually, your research not only kind of analyzed heavily the relationship between social media and the representation of refugees and migrants, uh, you also seem to allude to then a connection between the representation or the discourse present in social media and then your border policy. Could you maybe tell us a bit more about this? Yes, although not a quantitative researcher, I, I would suggest <laughs> correlations. Why? Because as we say with my co-author, Dr. Maria Ioannou, is that this hashtag was used by very far-right wing anti-migrant actors. Yes, and they are proud about it. So it doesn't feel like an accusation what I am saying. But in fact... The policies that they suggested or the policies that they were helping reproduce and justify were not really radical right-wing policies. They are the mainstream policies of the European Union and of certain member states. So the whole discourses around migration and what they want about our borders. Yes? The European borders resonates with what our leaders are managing. And it's not only what I said about von der Leyen's famous phrase, hold the line. We found the same words, the same wording. We found it in this data coming from the far right. Or the year before, a new portfolio of the European Commission promoting the European way of life did cause a backlash when it was announced, which pushed them to change it from protecting our European way of life to promoting it. And we found the same words in these Twitterers of intolerance that were telling us, protect the European way of life. But yes, that's how we use an understanding of how borders and migration is managed to kind of help us to see the relationship between discourse and practices. Maria, is there anything that you think our listeners need to know to be able to understand the context of your research about this topic? I'm thinking, for example, of the concept of othering. Would you like to talk us, uh, to us a little bit about that? Yes, so the idea of othering the way we approached it and we used it for our uh, papers and my work more broadly comes from a very, I would say, simple idea that the way we think of the others basically mirrors the way we make sense of ourselves. Yes. So if we say that the other is a Muslim, you don't need to say what you are. We can make some guesses. Or if you say that the other is a threat, then probably you are under threat. If you say that the other is uncivilized, then probably this makes you civilized. So in Eurocentric understandings of us and the other, usually you find these binaries, which are very simple. Yes, the good and the bad. But this simplicity is also what makes it also very powerful. Yes. Why? Because it reproduces pre-existing understanding. So you're building on something that pre-existed, which makes it easy. And at the same time, you are kind of reproducing it. So identifying othering processes in our data uh, helped us understand not only ideas about who the other is that we want to keep out, but also who we think we are. Also, like kind of using what you just said, something that I find really interesting about your article is you mentioned that social media served as an alter ego mouthpiece. What do you mean when you say alter ego mouthpiece? Yes, on one hand, it relates to othering because this 
network of intolerance was, uh, you know, a bit more free to say who the other is and who we are, whereas, you know, political correctness does not always allow more mainstream and conventional politicians to say these things explicitly. Basically, the argument is that social media currently play a role in reproducing certain ideologies of mainstream actors, specifically, and of very mainstream, or we consider them mainstream policies, and we are shedding light on the more dark side of this ideological role. But that's the whole idea. You have a network of intolerance that is saying the unsayable ideas that we may not find in more mainstream mainstream uh, spaces. So what is their role in reproducing ideas that are exclusionary? Ideas that relate to nationalism, racism, and rationalization. The problem is that they're not that marginal. They are reproducing very mainstream understandings of borders and of migration. Maria, thank you so much for this conversation about migration and how it is represented on social media. Thank you so much for your research and for joining us today. It was a pleasure to talk to you. It was a pleasure as well. Thank you for the opportunity and good luck in your effort and your initiative, which is great. And I look forward to listening about other colleagues' research as well. This podcast is produced at the History Department at the Erasmus University School of History, Culture and Communication. The production team is Natalia da Silva Perez, Peter van den Hede, and Isabella Restrepo Vargas. Financial support comes from the Erasmus University Lustrum 110 Project Group. This podcast is released under an attribution, non-commercial, share-alike, Creative Commons license. Thank, Thank you for, for listening. listening.